Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast is sponsored by True Niagen. True Niagen fuels the body's energy engines, maintains your cellular metabolism, and even supports a healthy heart. You can get 10% off your first purchase as a new customer at trueniagen.com slash Peter using promo code Peter. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And I'd also like to thank a brand new sponsor, Calm, for supporting my podcast. Calm is the number one mental wellness app. Sleep more, stress less, and live better with Calm. Go to calm.com slash gold. For a limited time, you can get 40% off your Calm premium subscription with hundreds of hours of programming, unlimited access to Calm's entire library where new content is added every week. The markets have been on a roller coaster ride the last couple of days. On Monday, the Dow was down better than 900 points at the lows. By the time they rang the bell, we were only down about 700. And then on Tuesday, we had a big rebound. At one point, the Dow was up better than 600. We did close relatively close to those highs. The Dow was up about 550 points. Oil got killed on Monday. It was down better than $5 a barrel. We closed below $67. Although as I'm recording this podcast again Wednesday morning, we've recovered maybe about $2 off of those lows. Part of the reason though for the oil sell-off was an OPEC meeting where they agreed to increase production. Uh, So that was also a catalyst. But oil sold off. Again, with all risk assets, the idea that the global economy is going to slow down, I don't think so much because of COVID as from the higher interest rates that everybody is expecting the central banks to use to fight off inflation. And obviously, a rising oil price is at the center of that inflation story. And maybe as the price of oil came down, it may have temporarily diffused that ticking time bomb.
you know, despite all this volatility, you know, the major indexes, the NASDAQ, Dow, S&P, they are all relatively close to their record highs. The only index that's had a bigger drop off its highs is the Russell 2000, which again is small cap stocks, which is more reflective of what's happening in the U.S. economy than the monetary stimulus that has been inflating the stock market bubble. But I thought it was interesting that pretty much everybody in the financial media was blaming the sell-off on Monday on COVID fears or renewed COVID fears, uh, you know, the, the Delta variant. And, you know, to me, sure, COVID was in the news over the weekend, but it's been in the news the last couple of weeks. I don't think that anything was so spectacular over the weekend that all of a sudden COVID became an issue on Monday when it wasn't an issue on Friday. It's more likely that COVID was just a convenient scapegoat to blame the market's decline on so that they wouldn't have to actually think about a more damaging reason for the decline in the market. And I think investors are beginning to be concerned that the Fed is going to take away the punch bowl, that it's going to prick the bubble. It's all of these inflation fears and not so much the fears of inflation. That's not what's bothering the market. What's bothering the market is that the market believes the Fed is going to fight inflation, that the Fed is going to do what it said. After all, Jerome Powell just assured the nation, have faith. We will make sure there is no inflation. We believe it's transitory, but in the event that we're wrong, don't worry. We're going to be on the job. We're going to use our tools. We're reluctant to use them now, but don't worry. We'll use them in the future if we have to. And the markets are taking the Fed at its word. I don't know why, uh, but they still believe the things that Fed officials say, especially Fed chairman. And so I think it's the fear of higher rates, the fear that the Fed is going to end this party sooner than everybody had expected, that they're going to begin to taper their asset purchases sooner. That's what's worrying the market. In fact, very recently, the Reserve Bank in New Zealand became the first central bank to basically officially end its quantitative easing program. The Reserve Bank said, we're not going to do it anymore. And now the markets are anticipating rate hikes to begin very soon. And what is the reason that the Reserve Bank gave for abandoning quantitative easing? Well, it's no longer needed, and inflation is now nearing the upper end of our 1% to 3% band, and the economy is in good shape, and so we are going to have to remove this accommodation. Now, I think that the inflation rate in New Zealand, as it will in many parts of the world, is going to end up being above that 3% level. And so if they're going to maintain any credibility, the Reserve Bank in New Zealand is probably going to be raising interest rates a lot further than the markets believe. But I think the fact that you have a central bank ending QE the markets are now anticipating the other dominoes that are going to fall. It's not just going to be this one central bank in a small little country like New Zealand. This is simply indicative of something that's going to be playing out on a much bigger scale 
with central banks all around the world. And that's why, you know, it was a global sell-off. It's not just the U.S. stock market that sold off on Monday. All the stock markets around the world sold off on Monday because of the universal fear that global interest rates are going to go up and the central banks are going to rain on their own party by pricking their own bubble. But, you know, I still don't understand why everybody is so convinced that this is going to happen, right? And that is the main reason that you're not seeing a rise in the price of gold. Now, the price of gold didn't get clobbered on Monday. It was relatively flat. I mean, maybe it was even up a buck or so, but it didn't have a big rally, which a lot of people were potentially expecting gold bugs. They were hoping for a rally. We didn't get one. And so the idea was, well, hey, gold's not performing. It's not acting as a safe haven. Well, in a way it was, it just didn't go up, but it didn't go down. And so in terms of other assets, gold's purchasing power gained as stocks were tanking and the price of gold held steady. The ability to buy more stocks with an ounce of gold was there. And of course, if you measured gold in most currencies, gold did very well in terms of Australian dollars, in terms of Canadian dollars, all of the economically sensitive commodity-type currencies got clobbered, and the price of gold stayed the same, which means in those currencies, gold went up. Now, gold didn't go up in terms of Japanese yen or Swiss francs or U.S. treasuries because those were the safe havens that everybody piled into. It's like everybody kind of has a safe haven of choice, and there are a lot more people for now that are seeking safety in U.S. treasuries or even Japanese yen or Swiss francs than are seeking safety in gold. You know, of course, it's interesting. Nobody sought safety in Bitcoin because there is no safety there because it is a risk asset, not a safe haven. And I'll get to Bitcoin in a minute. I don't want to, you know, kind of go off track on the topic now. But the reason that you didn't see a bigger rise in gold, and in fact, gold sold off a bit on Tuesday, and it's already down a little bit on Wednesday morning. I'm recording this podcast very early on Wednesday morning. But I think what happened on Tuesday is when everybody piled back in to the risk assets, it was a risk-off day, and so people sold gold, even though they didn't necessarily rush to buy it on Monday. There were certainly people ready to sell it on Tuesday when the risk assets had a rebound. But the reason that people are not piling into gold is because they expect the Fed to not only fight inflation, but to be successful in its fight against inflation. So they expect the price of gold to drop. Even though the price of gold is not dropping, it's just not rising. What is dropping are the prices of gold and silver mining stocks. They actually got killed on Monday, even more than the overall market. And then they didn't rally. I mean, they rallied a little bit on Tuesday morning, but then they couldn't hold those gains as the price of gold, which was up initially about 10 bucks or so on Tuesday morning, ended up turning negative and it closed down a couple of bucks. It never really went down a lot, maybe five or six bucks. But the fact that it gave up its gains took some of the enthusiasm out of that early gold stock rebound. But again, these gold stock investors are looking forward to the big sell-off in gold that they expect. Now, what they're not paying attention to 
is the fact that gold's not selling off. They expect it to sell off in the future, even though it's not selling off in the present. And why do they expect it to sell off in the future? Well, because they expect a tight Fed. The Fed's going to start raising interest rates or shrinking its balance sheet, and that's going to be bad for the price of gold. And so it's going to be bad for the future earnings of gold mining stocks. Meanwhile, their current earnings are fantastic. Gold mining companies have never been this cheap relative to the amount of money that they're earning. And in fact, the price of gold doesn't even have to go up. If it just stays where it is, these gold stocks make a lot of money. Now, I don't expect the price of gold to stay where it is. I expect it to go way up because unlike the markets, I not only don't expect the Fed to win a fight against inflation, I don't expect it to get in the ring. I think inflation is going to win Uh, by default, because the government's not even going to attempt to fight because the consequences are too high. And that's what the markets just don't seem to understand. And to me, it's really incredible that they can't connect dots that are so obvious because, and I said this in an earlier podcast, but I want to reiterate the point, if the Fed really was willing to use its inflation-fighting tools it would have already used them. It would be using them now, not just pretending that it's going to use them in the future. You see, now it's saying we don't have to use our tools because it's possible that the inflation fire will just go out on its own, that it's all transitory. And so we're just going to keep the tools in the shed because we don't want to hurt the economy. But if it turns out we're wrong and the inflation problem gets much worse and then it requires a much more aggressive use of our tools that will be disastrous for the economy, don't worry, we'll use them then. See, that makes no sense. Given the severity of the consequences of inflation not being transitory, it makes no sense for the Fed to roll the dice and take a chance. It should do something preemptively to prevent that from happening. The only reason it's not doing something preemptively is because it doesn't want to hurt the economy. Well, you should hurt the economy in order to prevent it from being hurt far worse in the future if the gamble doesn't pay off. But what the Fed is saying is we're going to make a big gamble that inflation is transitory. But if we're wrong, well, we're willing to administer a much more lethal you know, dose of medicine to the economy than the one that we're reluctant to administer now. Who's going to believe that? Because when they get to that point, right, when the Fed gets to a point in time where they have to admit that inflation isn't transitory, are they really going to pull the trigger? Are they really going to do in the future, whether it's in six months or a year, something that they don't have the guts to do right now? I mean, it's easy to talk about having the guts to do something, right? I can talk about, oh, yeah, I want to go skydiving. Ah, It's going to be great. Right. Oh, yeah. Well, what happens when you're up in that plane and you're staring out the the hatch and you're looking down at the earth and then, you know, you're too scared to actually jump out of the plane? I mean, you could talk about it when you're on the ground and you're not actually up there, but when you're actually staring out the plane and looking down, maybe you're too scared to actually jump. And I kind of think that would be the situation for the Fed. They can make a lot of noise about, oh, don't worry. Yeah. You know, but when push comes to shove, they're not going to have the courage to do what they're pretending to do. You know, again, it's just like, too, with the stimulus and all this, you know, I've used the analogies about your buddy that's overweight and, oh, don't worry, I'm going to go on a diet in the future. You you have a habit, you're a smoker. Oh, I'm going to quit smoking in the future. It's very easy to talk 
hypothetically about some difficult decision that you're going to make at some point in the future when there are no consequences to making that decision right now. So it's easy to talk when there's no consequences and there's nothing at stake. And, and in fact, the Fed actually has a motivation to bluff that it would fight inflation because it's hoping that its talk is enough to prevent inflation from getting worse. So just the mere fact that we're saying that we'd fight inflation, that that will have some type of psychological effect on the markets. And so maybe we won't have to fight inflation. We can talk our way out of the battle. But if it turns out that that talk didn't work, that the inflation problem not only doesn't go away, but gets worse, I expect the Fed to make excuses, just like the guy who makes excuses for not going on a diet or not quitting smoking, because it's very difficult to do those things. And as difficult as it would be for the Fed to use its tools to fight inflation today, it's going to be much more difficult tomorrow to use those tools because the problem, the inflation problem is going to be much bigger, which means they're going to have to take a much bigger hammer right, to the economy. And so they're going to do much more damage to an even greater leveraged economy when they have to fight an even larger inflation monster. So again, when investors really think this through, they will realize that they're afraid of the wrong thing. Instead of being afraid of the inflation fight, they should be afraid of inflation and the fact that it wins, that there is no fight, and it gets much worse than everybody expects. True Niagen fuels the body's energy engines, maintains your cellular metabolism, and supports a healthy heart, and is clinically proven to boost NAD levels, an essential coenzyme required for cellular energy and repair. And now you can get 10% off your first purchase as a new customer at trueniagen.com slash Peter when you use the promo code Peter. That's trueniagen, T-R-U-N-I-A-G-E-N.com slash Peter. With promo code Peter, you can save 10% on your first purchase. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. In fact, another reason that people should see through this charade that we're going to you know, have a tighter monetary policy, we're going to actually have tight monetary policy being a drag, right? We're going to have contractionary monetary policy, yet we're going to maintain stimulative fiscal policy. Because see, nobody is talking about the federal government cutting spending, right? Everybody in Washington, even the Republicans, because they are in favor of infrastructure bills. So everybody wants more monetary stimulus. There is no consensus or even a discussion about a need to cut back on government spending or to reduce the deficit. So there is some talk, hey, maybe the Fed will have to pull back on its money printing, but nobody is talking about the U.S. government reducing its spending. Everybody is talking about the U.S. government spending more. And they're not just talking about spending more, they're actually spending more, and they're planning on spending a whole lot more. Again, even the Republicans want to spend more, they just don't want to spend as much more as do the Democrats. And so a lot of people think, okay, so, you know, the economy is going to rely on fiscal stimulus in the future. We're not going to have monetary stimulus. Well, what people don't understand is that today you can't have fiscal stimulus 
without monetary stimulus. It's impossible. Yes, in the past, that was possible. You could have had either the government stimulating the economy by borrowing money and spending it, or the Federal Reserve stimulating the economy by printing it, adding it to the banking system so that the private sector can go out and spend it or borrow it or whatever. But you don't have that ability today. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The only way the U.S. government can engage in fiscal stimulus is if the Fed also simultaneously engages as monetary stimulus to finance it. Because if the U.S. government is going to run deficits, and in fact, larger deficits, to try to stimulate the economy with additional government spending— They can't go into the private sector and borrow the money because the money's not there. So if the U.S. government tried to finance fiscal stimulus on its own, interest rates would go way up. And that drag on the economy that we would get from much higher interest rates, that would be the result of larger deficits, would offset the stimulus of the government spending. So the government would end up negating its own stimulus Because if it tried to finance it, the effect on interest rates would negate what they're trying to do. So to offset that, to prevent that from happening, the only way that you can have fiscal stimulus is for the Federal Reserve to buy all the bonds and print the money to pay for them to prevent interest rates from going up. So if you believe that we're going to continue to have fiscal stimulus, which certainly all the politics would indicate is the case, then you can't also believe that the Federal Reserve is going to reverse course and start withdrawing monetary stimulus. Because the more fiscal stimulus we have, the more monetary stimulus is required to sustain it, which is why rather than tapering its asset purchases, the Federal Reserve is actually far more likely to ramp it up because it's going to have to monetize the even larger deficits that are going to be produced by the fiscal stimulus. So again, they're not going to try to put out the inflation fire. They're going to throw gasoline on that fire. And of course, I wanted to mention too, the whole idea that the government can stimulate the economy by borrowing and spending money, even let's say without the Federal Reserve's help. I'm just talking about old-fashioned Keynesian 
fiscal stimulus, which was devised at a time where the government actually could do it. The U.S. government in the time of Keynes was actually solvent and could borrow money during bad times. And we had enough savings that there was money available to be loaned. And so the government didn't have to worry about a big increase in interest rates. And of course, the country wasn't so levered up so that even if rates went up, it wasn't going to create a financial collapse. But the underlying problem with this theory is that it's completely wrong. Because all it does, if the U.S. government borrows money from the private sector and then spends it, yes, in the short run, you do get more consumption. Because the money that the government borrows, right, it gives to people to just buy stuff. It spends the money. And so you see that more immediately in GDP numbers. But where is the government getting the money? Well, it's getting it from private individuals who have savings to loan to the government. Well, what would those private individuals have done with their savings if they didn't loan them to the government? I mean, they were going to loan them to somebody. They weren't going to just stuff the money under their mattress or bury the money in their backyard. It would have been loaned out. I mean, even if it went to a bank, right, if they just put it in the bank rather than buying U.S. government bonds, the bank would have loaned the money out. And what type of loans would the bank have made? Well, it would have made loans to businessmen, to entrepreneurs who would have used the money for capital investment. And so all that's happening when the U.S. government borrows money that otherwise would have been used to fund productive investments and then instead uses it to finance consumption, it actually undermines the long-term growth of the economy. But the trade-off is you get a little bit of a high in the short run because we get this big bump in consumption at the expense of a reduction in investment that would lead to more production. But what that ultimately means is that in the long run, the fiscal stimulus actually reduces long-term consumption. It simply pulls some of that long-term consumption forward but reduces the overall consumption because ultimately the strain on consumption is production. You can't consume what's not produced. So production is the limiting factor to consumption. So to the extent that the government succeeds in depleting the free market of savings that otherwise would have been used to finance capital investment that would have led to greater production, ultimately, we have less production of goods and services and therefore less consumption of those goods and services because there are fewer goods and services to consume because the government took the money that would have been used to make the investments to produce them and blew it on current consumption. But it's good politics, right? Because it makes people think that things are getting better. But you could have a similar example if you break it down to an individual level, right? If, you know, a breadwinner of the family, let's say he loses his job and he could come home and he can break the bad news to his wife. Hey, honey, I just lost my job. uh, So we're going to have to cut back on our spending because I don't have my income anymore. We're going to have to live off our savings. So, you know, we're going to have to cancel the vacation we were planning. And I know we're about to get a new car, but, you know, let's just make do with our old car, you know, because, I'm unemployed, so this is not the time to buy a new car, right? We have to hunker down until I get a new job, right? That would be the responsible thing to do, right, in the face of that job loss. But let's say the guy was irresponsible 
And maybe he didn't even want to tell his wife that he lost his job. And so instead, he just pretends to go to work every day, but he starts borrowing money on his credit card and taking out a loan on his home so that they can have that vacation, so that they can buy that new car. They keep on acting as if he's still got a job, but they're just borrowing money and spending it. Now, obviously, in the long run, they're making their situation far worse, right? They're risking bankruptcy because they're doing all the wrong things. They should have cut back. But instead, they're avoiding making those hard choices by going into debt and buying all this stuff. In fact, maybe they buy even more stuff. Maybe the guy's borrowing so much more money that he used to earn that they buy an even fancier car. They take an even nicer vacation, right? So it looks, everything is great. But of course, beneath the surface, everything is a disaster because you got to look at the way it's being financed. Now, that's what the U.S. government is doing. But of course, Keynesians will say, well, my example is flawed because the U.S. government is not the same as a household. And the government could do things that an individual household can't. And my answer to that is no. I mean, it could get away with it for longer. That's true. But it can't get away with it indefinitely because the only thing the U.S. government is is a collection of all the individual households in the United States. And so something we can't do individually We can't do collectively, right? If there's something that no one family could do, if all the families get together, they can't just do the same thing. That would be magic. And the U.S. government can't perform magic. But yes, if we all get together, we can delay the consequences of doing the wrong thing, but only with the trade-off of that when we eventually are held accountable for those consequences, it's a much bigger day of reckoning. Here's the bad news. The world is full of uncertainty, and that might leave you feeling stressed or anxious. What's the good news? You can navigate change, feel more relaxed, and quiet your mind with calm. Consider this ad as your mental health checkpoint. How are you feeling today? A little anxious? You haven't been sleeping well? You're lacking focus? It's okay if you need a little help sometimes, and calm can provide the support that you need. And that's why I've partnered up with Calm, the number one mental wellness app, to give you the tools that you need to improve the way you feel. You can clear your head with guided daily meditation, improve your focus with Calm's curated music tracks, and drift into dreamland with Calm's imaginative sleep stories. And if you go to calm.com gold, you'll get a limited time offer of 40% off your Calm premium subscription, which includes hundreds of hours of programming. And there's new content that's added every week. So join the over 100 million people around the world already using Calm to take care of their minds. Sleep more, stress less, live better with Calm. And for listeners of my show, Calm is offering a special limited time promotion of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash gold. That's 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library where new content is added every week. Get started today at calm.com slash gold. That's calm.com slash gold. But the point I was trying to make about fiscal stimulus is that people have the idea that we can keep having fiscal stimulus, but that the Fed is going to turn off the monetary stimulus. That's never going to happen because that's impossible. So the Fed could talk all they want about ending monetary stimulus, but they can't do it if at the same time they're encouraging deficit spending, they're encouraging government spending. In fact, when 
Powell was asked specifically in these congressional testimonies, should the U.S. government deal with the deficit? He said, no, now is not the time to do that. We have to wait until some mythical time in the future when supposedly everything is great, but apparently right now it's too early to do anything. He is still encouraging the government to spend all this money. In fact, he's encouraging them to spend more money. And in fact, when the Republicans ask Powell about, hey, would it make your job easier to fight inflation if we weren't spending as much money, if we weren't borrowing as much money? He just refuses to answer the question. I mean, he probably knows the answer. He's just basically claiming the equivalent of the fifth because anything he says can and will be used against him. And he doesn't want that. So he just remains silent. But if he's remaining silent, if he can't even tell the truth, how can we expect him to do the truth in taking away the punch bowl or actually following through with his commitment to fight inflation and raise interest rates. So it should be completely obvious to everybody that this is all talk. But in the meantime, you can't be frustrated if you're in gold, if you're in gold stocks and you're seeing this weakness. I know it's frustrating that you're not seeing the immediate gratification of, aha, we were right. We knew inflation was coming. We knew inflation was going to be a problem. Everybody was saying, no, it's not a problem. Don't worry about it. And now all of a sudden we're right. It is a problem. People are worried about it. But instead of gold taking off, it's just going sideways. And instead of gold stocks going through the roof, they're falling through the floor, right? And and so it's disappointing. But again, all I'm thinking about personally is, you know what? I might have to start buying some more gold stocks. I hadn't been buying any personally recently because I have so much money already in gold stocks. I had been mainly buying non-gold stocks. But now all of a sudden I'm thinking, you know what? I'm going to start adding to my gold stock position again, even though it's so large, you know, as a percentage of my overall portfolio, you know, I'll make it larger. If the market gives me the opportunity to do something, I'm going to take advantage of that opportunity. You know, when the stocks really shoot up is when I back away and I don't add to my positions anymore. I start looking for other places to put my money. But again, now as big a waiting as I have, I'm tempted. And of course, the waiting is going down because my gold stocks in my personal portfolio are underperforming all of my non-gold stocks. You know, and so now the percentage that I have in gold stocks relative to my old portfolio has actually come down a bit. And so that opens up a window to maybe bring the allocation back up by buying a little bit more on this dip. You know, I don't know how big the dip is going to get before it reverses. I don't think anybody knows. My feeling is there's not that much downside in these stocks, given the reality of what's going on. But you never know how long it's going to take for sleeping investors to wake up, but take advantage of their ignorance while they're blissfully sleeping away and don't wake up to the reality of this problem by, you know, just taking advantage of it. And again, I think the best way a lot of people can take advantage of the drop in gold stocks, not so much, again, the drop in gold, but the drop in the gold stocks because people are expecting a drop in gold is you buy the uh, Europe Pacific Gold Fund or set up a managed account with us at Europe Pacific Asset Management. We manage portfolios in gold mining stocks. Adrian Day is the portfolio manager. And if you don't have enough money for a separately managed account, you can get into my mutual fund. You can work with the representatives at Europe Pacific Capital, Europe Pacific Asset Management. Or if you already have a brokerage account, you can just check it. All of the 
discount brokers have the Europe Pacific Gold Fund on their platform. You know, some people have asked me why it's not on Robinhood. Robinhood just doesn't have any open-ended mutual funds. They'd have a closed-end fund that trades on an exchange, but there are no open-ended funds available on the Robinhood app. But if you do want to make a small investment and you don't already have a brokerage account, you can buy my gold fund directly on the Europe Pacific Asset Management website. You go to www.epacfunds.com and you could just open up an account online and buy a small amount of the gold fund. I think the minimum is $2,500 to get started, but you could just buy directly with the fund. But, you know, getting back to the fiscal stimulus, in fact, there is some new talk now about putting these fiscal stimulus plans on autopilot. They're talking about automatic fiscal stimulus, meaning that, you know, if something happens in the economy, they may want to tie it to the unemployment rate. I think that is the most significant number, I think, that they're trying to use as a benchmark for when these things should kick in. Because they say they want to take the politics out of stimulus, right? They don't want anybody holding stimulus hostage as if there's no valid reason to oppose stimulus, right? That stimulus, when people stop spending or there's more unemployment, stimulus is always the right policy. And the only reason anybody would oppose it would be for some political game to try to use it to take advantage of the situation and to exact some type of, you know, extra pork. And so they're saying, hey, let's take the politics out of it so that it's automatic, so that whenever unemployment goes up, we're going to have automatic increases in these stimulus checks. It just gets sent out to everybody, regardless of their status. You don't have to be unemployed. If unemployment goes up, if your neighbor loses his job, you may catch a break and you get a stimulus check too. So for the people who don't lose their jobs and they just get extra money to supplement the money they're still earning, I mean, it's a huge windfall, which makes no sense. I mean, just because some people have lost their jobs, why should the people who still have their jobs get a windfall as a result of that? I mean, nobody really stops to think about any of these points. They just think, hey, if we have more unemployment, we just got to start sending everybody checks. And again, this assumes that the answer to every problem is more government spending. Well, what if the problem is too much government spending? What if the reason we're in recession is because we have too much government? What if it's inflation? What if rising prices are the reason that we have a recession? Well, the cure for that is not more stimulus that's going to cause even more inflation when the Fed makes it possible. But the solution maybe is less government. The solution is to cut back on government spending, not automatically increase it. We need the free market to solve that problem, not for the government to impose yet another roadblock preventing that from happening. But again, if we are going to get anything passed with automatic stimulus payments, if such a harebrained bill actually passes, and it very easily could, Again, that also takes the Fed out of the picture when it comes to its ability to fight inflation, to end monetary stimulus. Because if we have fiscal stimulus on autopilot, then we have monetary stimulus on autopilot, right? Because the minute these stimulus plans kick in, 
right? So let's say we have inflation is cutting back on purchasing power. Businesses are seeing their costs going up. They can't raise their prices enough without losing volume. So they start contracting and they're economizing and they're laying people off. So you've got stagflation. So you've got rising prices, you've got rising unemployment, and then all of a sudden the automatic stimulus is triggered by the higher unemployment, and now everybody gets these big stimulus checks, well, they're all going to bounce unless the Federal Reserve prints money. So even if it was planning on fighting inflation, it can't, right? It's like uh, Mike Tyson. Everybody has a plan until you get punched in the mouth. I mean, maybe even if the Federal Reserve actually had a plan to taper off on the monetary stimulus, when they get punched in the mouth by automatic stimulus payments, well, what are they going to do? They got a whole new plan or they give up on their plan. So that's another reason that the market should be looking beyond this smokescreen of, yeah, we're going to fight inflation in the future. We're going to use our inflation fighting tools that we're reluctant to use now and actually believe anything that the Fed is saying. They just have to think of the consequences of the Fed actually doing what it's promising to do to realize it's not going to do it. And again, look at all of the other failed promises. The Fed is going to normalize interest rates. Did it ever do that? No. The Fed was going to shrink its balance sheet back down to where it was before the 2008 financial crisis. Did that ever happen? No, that never happened either. And in fact, there's another government charade that's going to be playing out, I guess, over the next uh, couple of weeks. And that's the one that involves the debt ceiling, right? The ever-increasing debt ceiling, which we're going to run into the two-year expiration of the last suspension of the debt ceiling. So the debt ceiling two years ago was suspended, and the suspension is up at the end of this month. And so during the suspension of the debt ceiling, there was no ceiling. So the sky's the limit. The government can borrow as much money as it wants. But when the suspension is over, then the debt ceiling resets to whatever it's at at that point. So in other words, they didn't raise the debt ceiling. The government raised it by spending money, and it goes up by the amount that they happen to spend. Right. I mean, that'd be great if you can get a credit card like that. Well, what's the limit? Well, the limit is whatever you happen to spend. Right. Well, that's the limit that Congress gave the U.S. government. It's like, well, the debt limit is however much you want to spend during the next two years. So run up the spending. Right. Because that's what their incentive was. But now we're running into that limit. And in fact, the whole charade of a suspension of the debt ceiling rather than an official raising of the debt ceiling. Again, that's all politics. And that started in 2013, right? Because before 2013, they just ritually raised the debt ceiling. Every couple of years, uh, they would vote to raise the debt ceiling. Sometimes the debt ceiling increases would get very partisan and they'd have these government shutdowns for a while where all they did is shut down the services that people like, like, you know, national parks. But meanwhile, all the parts of government that nobody likes, well, they kept working. You know, they just made a big deal about shutting down certain high profile things temporarily until they raised the debt ceiling again. But by 2013, nobody really had the guts politically to vote to increase the debt ceiling. It was embarrassing, particularly for Republicans, not so much for Democrats, but generally Republicans, a lot of Republicans would campaign 
that they want to balance the budget, that they're fiscal conservatives, that they don't want all this government. And then they would face a potential challenge in the primary if they voted to increase the debt ceiling because they're obviously hypocrites. And so the Republicans didn't want to be put in the spot of voting to raise the debt ceiling. So they didn't. Instead of raising the debt ceiling, they suspended it which in reality is a distinction without a difference. But I guess, politically speaking, they never actually voted to raise the debt ceiling. But they did vote to suspend the debt ceiling. And the consequence is the same, is that we keep borrowing more and more money. Well, we suspended the debt ceiling last. The national debt, and this was, I think, in mid-2019, the national debt had just gone across $22 trillion. So it's basically $22 trillion. So that's where the debt ceiling last stood. Now, if you go and look online, you'll see that the current national debt is over $28.5 trillion. So we've added $6.5 trillion to the national debt in the two years that the national debt has been suspended. So in other words, what's that? It's over $3 trillion a year in increased debt. Now, there's a lot of talk now that we need to just get rid of the debt ceiling completely rather than just suspending it again. I mean, clearly that's the direction that they're headed. In fact, I'm even, you know, you hear people saying that the debt ceiling is a bigger threat to the economy than the debt. And that's only true to the sense that the debt ceiling potentially could cause us to have to deal with our problems now rather than making the problems worse and kicking the can down the road so we have to deal with those bigger problems in the future, right? If having to deal with reality makes it worse, like the example I gave earlier, the husband having to tell his wife that he lost his job and now they can't spend as much money, that's bad. You know, it's convenient to pretend you still have a job and borrow money that you used to earn, but you're just setting yourself up for a bigger future disaster. So it isn't the debt ceiling. I mean, the debt ceiling would be the solution to the problem. The problem is that we keep raising the debt ceiling or suspending the debt ceiling, not that we have a debt ceiling. You know, it's laughable because people keep saying stuff like, you know, we have to raise the debt ceiling because America always pays its bills. Because if we don't raise the debt ceiling, well, then we can't pay our bills anymore because we can't borrow the money to pay our bills. But the reality is, if America paid its bills, we wouldn't have any debt. The ceiling wouldn't be a problem. See, when you pay your bills, they're paid. When you don't pay your bills, you have debt, right? Because you borrow money and then you use the borrowed money to pay your bills, but then you have new bills because now you owe the people who loaned you money. So technically, if you borrow from Peter to pay Paul, you haven't really paid Paul so much as borrowed from Peter. You still have debt. So we don't pay our debts. That's the reason we have to raise the debt ceiling, because we don't pay our debts and we want to keep on not paying our debts. And the only way we can keep on not paying our debts is if we can keep borrowing more money. And so we have to raise the debt ceiling. The minute we stop raising the debt ceiling, that's the minute we have to start paying our bills. But the problem is we can't pay our bills, which is why the debt ceiling is going to go up and why they may eventually eliminate it completely. You know, I want to mention again, because a lot of people who listen to my podcast now may not have been listening for years. They could be new listeners. And I have mentioned on this podcast before where the debt ceiling even came from. Because a lot of people, maybe they just assume we've always had one because, you know, it's been here ever since we've all been alive. 
But we didn't have a debt ceiling in the Constitution, right? There's no limit to how much money the government can borrow in the Constitution. It would have been nice if they had put a limit. That maybe would have helped. Uh, but they didn't. The debt ceiling didn't arrive until like 1917. I think that was the year. And it wasn't a coincidence that that's when we had a debt ceiling. What was going on then was the First World War. And the U.S. had just entered the war. And a few years earlier, in 1913, the Federal Reserve Act was established. Now, in the original Federal Reserve Act, the Federal Reserve was not authorized to own any U.S. treasuries because the creators of the Federal Reserve and Congress that voted for the act did not want, at least publicly, they did not want the Federal Reserve to ever monetize government debt. They didn't want the Federal Reserve to somehow incentivize and enable the U.S. government to take on more debt, because obviously if the U.S. government knew that it could sell bonds to the Federal Reserve, then it would be motivated to spend more money and borrow more money because it would have this easy source of financing. So not only couldn't the Federal Reserve buy bonds directly from the U.S. Treasury, which is a restriction that is still in effect. So technically, the U.S. government cannot borrow directly from the Federal Reserve, but they borrow indirectly from the Federal Reserve because the Federal Reserve is allowed to go into the secondary market and buy U.S. treasuries from other people who own them, enriching all of the banks that make a commission off these sales. But when the Federal Reserve Act was originally established, the Federal Reserve couldn't do that either. So the Federal Reserve couldn't buy bonds from the government and it couldn't buy treasuries from anybody because it wasn't allowed to hold U.S. treasuries on its balance sheet. Imagine that. Imagine a national bank in today's day and age, a central bank that is legally prevented from actually owning the debt of the government of which it's a central bank for. I mean, no central banks are like that today. But that was the idea behind the Federal Reserve. And believe me, if the proposal in 1913 was for the Federal Reserve to be able to hold U.S. Treasuries on its balance sheet, it would not have had enough votes to pass. So we never would have had a Federal Reserve had its current abilities been included in the original act. Again, that's an example of the camel's nose under the tent, right? Once the camel gets its nose under the tent, if you let the nose in, it's not long before the entire camel came in. And look, if you look at the change in 1917, the camel had barely got its nose into the tent. And what do you know, they amend the Federal Reserve Act to allow it to own U.S. treasuries. And the catalyst for that was America's entrance into World War I. Because the minute we got into World War I, the government, of course, needed money to pay for the war. Well, an easy way to get the money was to borrow it from the Fed. Well, they couldn't do that because the Federal Reserve Act prohibited it. So they needed to amend the Federal Reserve Act so the U.S. government could borrow money from the Federal Reserve. And of course, the Federal Reserve would print money in order to give it to the U.S. government, which is why we had a lot of inflation during and immediately after the First World War. And that's what ultimately led to the big collapse in 1920, the Great Depression that never happened because the Fed basically took away the punch bowl, interest rates went up, markets crashed. Fortunately, at that time, the government did not interfere. In fact, the government responded to the collapse in 1920 by cutting government spending. 
something that it's never done since, and we got out of that depression right away. In fact, it wasn't even called the depression because it ended so quickly, even though it began even worse with a bigger drop in GDP than in the Great Depression. But because the government responded by making itself smaller and not bigger, we got out of it right away. But I don't want to spend too much time on that on this podcast. I'm focusing on the debt ceiling. So when Congress approved this change to the Federal Reserve Act to allow the Federal Reserve to do something that was not contemplated when the Federal Reserve was created, in fact, something that was specifically opposed, it wasn't left out by accident. It was on purpose that the Federal Reserve was not authorized to own any United States Treasury obligations. But when Congress was asked to vote on it, there were many congressmen that were concerned about the fact that this would be a moral hazard and it would lead to too much borrowing. So they wanted to figure out a way to kind of put a limit on the damage. And that's where the debt limit came from. They're saying, okay, now we're opening up the possibility that the government could take advantage of the Federal Reserve and the ability of the Federal Reserve to buy bonds. They're going to run up too much debt. So let's have a ceiling. Let's put a cap on how much debt the government would be able to have. So that's where it came from. So at the same time, the Congress said that the Federal Reserve can loan money to the U.S. government. They also put a statutory limit on how much money the U.S. government could borrow because they were worried that it would borrow too much based on having the Fed as its banker. Well, the problem was the ceiling was raised. I mean, I guess at the time they didn't consider the fact that any ceiling that they imposed could be lifted by a future Congress. And that's exactly what's happened. Every time we get near the ceiling, we raise it. And so ultimately we had no ceiling, which is why that bill never should have worked. They should not have amended the Federal Reserve Act. They should have forced the U.S. government to fund World War I honestly. If they wanted to borrow money, they should have borrowed it from the private sector or they should have raised taxes. They shouldn't have relied on the central bank. Basically, that was just the first step on the long road to hell. And unfortunately, we're about to complete the journey. Of course, I can't end this podcast without talking about Bitcoin and the wild ride that it's also been going on because it participated in the big sell-off on Monday with all the other risk assets. It went way down. In fact, Bitcoin was down more percentage-wise than the other risk assets, even though other safe haven assets were bid, including gold. I mean, even though gold wasn't up much at all in U.S. dollars, it was up in terms of many currencies, and gold spent most of the day recovering early morning losses, meaning gold was bid throughout the day by some people as a safe haven, whereas Bitcoin was sold off the entire day, and it went down with the risk assets. Then the following day on Tuesday, when you had a recovery in risk assets and you had a big rally, Bitcoin went down again. It was down as much on Tuesday as it was down on Monday. So certainly it was acting like an uncorrelated asset, right? No matter what other risk assets did, Bitcoin went down. I don't think that's the uncorrelation that the hodlers were hoping for. But Bitcoin itself went down below 30,000. 
However, even though it did get below the 30,000 level, it didn't take out the low from the last time it got below 30,000. I believe that low was around 28,600. I think the low this time was approximately maybe 29,400, something like that. So the low has held even if 30,000 did not. And we spent a lot of time below 30,000. We spent a lot more time below 30,000 this time than we spent below 30,000 the last time we went there. And one of the things that I've kind of learned being involved in the markets for as long as I have is markets rarely give you that much time to buy the lows. So normally when there's a low, it doesn't last very long. It's a quick opportunity and either you take advantage of it or you miss the opportunity. But when they give you a long time, to buy what you think are the low, it's probably not the low. That's the reason you're getting so much time to buy it is because you're probably making a mistake. Now, a lot of people who bought this dip below 30,000, right now, as I'm recording this, they probably don't think they made a mistake because as I'm recording it, the price of Bitcoin is back above 31,000. So people think, aha, the low has held, 30,000 held. It didn't really hold because we traded below it for an awfully long time. What held so far is the 28,600 low, but I don't think that low is going to hold if you look at the chart. I don't see anything different in this sucker rally just because we were below 30,000 for a while and now we're above 31,000. That doesn't mean that we have a bottom any more than the last rally. We got below 30,000 the last time and we almost rallied up to 37,000. What did that mean? We went right back below 30,000 again. So I think this rally, just like the rallies that have preceded it during this bear market, will fail. And this is more of another sucker rally to draw in more buyers, whether it's causing shorts to cover or new buyers to come in by trying to convince people that the worst is over. You see, we got below 30,000, all held in break loose. The market didn't collapse. So the coast is clear, come in and buy, right? That's what a lot of people are probably feeling now, a bunch of relief. They're glad they didn't sell when it went below 30,000. I'm glad I held on, right? Because now it's going to the moon. Look, Jeff Bezos may have gone into space in a rocket ship that looks like a giant penis, but it's the people who are buying Bitcoin on this rally. They're thinking they're going to the moon. Well, they're the ones that are going to get the real shaft. And something that I think might happen that ensures that outcome is going to be a crash in tether. You know, there's been a lot of smoke uh, that would indicate that there's a fire burning over a tether for some time. But I'm starting to see and read more and more credible allegations about the potential fraud involved in tether. And I've talked about that on this podcast, but I'm more and more convinced of that reality because tether, which is a stable coin tied to the U.S. dollar, initially the principle was, hey, this is not a fractional reserve system. For every tether that exists, for every digital tether, there's an actual dollar on deposit somewhere. And so that's why one tether is always worth one dollar because the tethers are backed by dollars. Now, of course, you know, you could do the same thing with gold. You can have a coin that's backed by gold. You can have gold on deposit somewhere, and then you can have a digital token. But one of the reasons a lot of people in the crypto community say, oh, we can't have 
a digital currency backed by gold, it's because, well, how do you trust the custodian? How do you know that the company that claims they have gold actually has it? And so a digital currency backed by gold won't work because you have the counterparty risk because the counterparty might not actually have the gold. Now, of course, there are ways around that. You have independent audits by reputable companies who can validate that the gold is there. But the irony of it is, a lot of the people who have a problem with trusting a third party to hold gold have no problem trusting a third party to hold their US dollars because they're willing to accept Tether. In fact, 75% of all the Bitcoin that are traded are traded with Tether, meaning the people who are selling their Bitcoin, they're accepting Tether instead of actual dollars. And the reason they accept Tether is because they believe that these Tether are backed up by actual dollars, except they're not. I mean, I would be surprised if there was even 10 cents of actual dollars behind these Tethers. I think they're running a massive fractional reserve system. It's basically a Ponzi scheme. And I think one of the reasons that so many tethers have been counterfeited is because they use these counterfeit tethers to buy Bitcoin and prop up the market. In fact, to the extent that we have a rally right now, I would bet that counterfeit tethers are the source of the buying. That's where the money is coming in. And I think something could happen soon that would cause a loss of confidence in tether. You know, you can't even redeem your tether, which should show you something, right? It's not like you could take your tether to tether and get your dollars. I mean, there are some institutions that are able to do that, but the vast majority of people who hold tether, the only way they can get their money is to sell them. And then somebody has to buy them and give them real dollars. Or you buy Bitcoin with Tether and then you sell your Bitcoin, but you don't accept Tether. Uh, you want to sell them for actual dollars, which is one of the reasons that all these Bitcoin holders love it when you get some institution coming in to buy Bitcoin with real money, because then they can sell their Bitcoin and get real money instead of getting fake money with Tether. Because if there's only, let's say, 10 cents of actual dollars behind every Tether and somebody sold their Bitcoin when it was 50,000 and they got Tether and they're still holding those Tether and they think they got out at 50,000. Well, if they've only got $5,000 in actual dollars in those Tethers, they didn't get $50,000 for their Bitcoin. They got $5,000. They got 50,000 Tether. But if each Tether is only worth 10 cents, they got $5,000 of Bitcoin, not 50,000. I think a lot of people who think they got out of Bitcoin haven't got out of anything. They just got out of one Ponzi into another Ponzi and they're deluding themselves into thinking what they own. But if the truth comes out about Tether, then the price of Tether is going to collapse. The people who own Tethers are going to get wiped out. But what does that mean? Because I've heard a lot of people say, oh, it doesn't even matter to Bitcoin. If Tether crashes, what difference does that make? It makes a huge difference, especially if 75% of the volume is financed with Tether. It's all fake volume. You take all that buying away, what's going to happen to the price? Assuming the selling remains, you still have people selling Bitcoin, but you don't have all this buying because you can't use Tether to buy them anymore. The price has got to drop. And of course, it's not just Bitcoin that depends on Tether. The entire crypto community is financed with Tether. This is like the lifeblood of the whole thing. I mean, you can't destroy Tether and assume that everything else is going to just continue business as usual. In fact, there's now almost 11,000 cryptocurrencies. There's 10,980. We just hit 10,000 of them. 
I don't remember how many months ago it was. It was a few months ago because I talked about it on this podcast when we got to 10,000. We're almost at 11,000. I mean, probably by the next time I do a podcast, we'll have 11,000 cryptocurrencies. And all these things are being made possible by the magic of Tether. So when that illusion is exposed for the trick that it is, for the fraud that it is, it's not just going to be that Tether is going to collapse. But Bitcoin is going to collapse. And of course, nobody is going to want to sell their Bitcoin for counterfeit tether. People are going to want to hold out for real money. Well, there's not as much real money willing to buy Bitcoin as there is fake money. So I think this is a potential problem that is looming on the horizon. The air is clearly coming out of this crypto bubble. The hodlers are completely complacent. They haven't a care in the world. They still think everything is going according to schedule, that Bitcoin is can continue this moonshot, that this dip is just like every other dip. We're going to go to 100,000. They've got their laser eyes. They're ready to go. And then we're going to go to 500,000. Then we're going to go to a million. Meanwhile, everything that Bitcoin was supposed to be, it's not. And the way it traded on Monday and Tuesday is a perfect example. It's not a safe haven. It's not a store of value. It is a risk asset. But since it's not an asset in the true sense of the word, it's worse than a risk asset. It's just a token. It is a gambling token that people collect because they have a dream that they're going to get rich. But unfortunately, that dream is going to turn into a nightmare. Instead of getting rich, they're going to go broke. 